It is great to have you this morning. My name is Tim Bidall and I serve as lead pastor here at Village Bible Church. And I'm going to ask you to open up God's Word and turn to the book of James this morning. Uh, last week we started a new series that we entitled Real Faith, Real Life, looking at the practical, wise words of James. Now last week we learned that uh, James, the author of this letter that we're going to be looking at, is the little brother of Jesus Christ himself. And James has a lot to say, not so much because he's the younger brother of Jesus. That helps to paint a, a greater picture of what we know and understand not only about Jesus, but the letter that was written. But I want you to recognize and know that James's life was changed. We learned last week that James would come face to face with his risen brother who would become his savior. And he would have a born-again experience that would change the way that he looked at life and understood uh, the different elements of life. And he became a leader within the church and served the church well. And uh, because of persecution that had broken out in the time of, of James's life amongst the church, he writes to a group of believers, we're told, who are scattered all over the region. And because they had scattered, because of the persecution, they had been driven from their homes James writes a letter to them, and he says, I know you're scattered, I know you're hurting, I know you're scared, I know you got lots of questions, but I write you to encourage you. I write you to give you wisdom. I want to give you direction as to how you can live in a way that honors God and brings blessing and fruit in your life. And he begins to write this letter, and the way he starts out this letter is he begins to talk about trials. He's going to address different things each and every week that we come, and I don't want you to think that all of this stuff originates from James himself. I want you to know and recognize this morning that the letter of James that he writes has incredible similarities to a sermon that Jesus once preached called the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, 17 different similarities are found in the letter of James to his older brother's Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see the first one today with regards to trials. Now, as he mimics, if you will, what his brother has to teach, we are reminded that this letter, of course, isn't just from another man, but it comes from the very heart and words of God. You see, James is going to teach us each and every week wisdom. The New Testament book of James has been called the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs because it's practical and it brings forth wisdom in a way that we can readily apply it to our lives. And so what do we apply this morning? In verses 2 through 12 of James chapter 1, as he begins this letter, he starts with a universal truth. Life is hard. It's hard sometimes. Some of us right now are dealing with some real hard stuff. There's issues and struggles within our life that, that really make the life that we're living not very joyous. We don't feel very blessed. We don't feel like God at times is for us. The circumstances and the troubles that, that come about bring a question into our minds. As followers of Jesus Christ, I have one of two choices to make. I can try to live this hard life on my own, try to deal with it when troubles come my way on my own, or I can choose to abandon self-reliance uh, and become focused and reliant on my Savior. I can make a decision that I'm not going to try to live this life on my own, but I'm going to depend and trust that my God is a good God and my God cares for me and my God loves me. And because of that, I have the ability to weather any storm that comes 
my way. To be able to do that, we have to have one word prevalent in our lives. That word is perspective. You see, what James is going to tell us is if our perspective is right, then whatever comes our way, we're going to be able to weather that storm. Whatever comes our way, we're going to be able to find joy amidst sorrow. Whatever comes our way, we might find spiritual maturity and we might find a new level of durability that is found alone in Christ Jesus. But what's the perspective that James wants us to have this morning? I want you to look at the title this morning because that's the perspective that James wants us to have. And I want you to help the person sitting next to you understand that. Look to the person next to you and I want you to utter these words. Life is sometimes hard. Look at them and say that. Life is sometimes hard. Now you who just heard that from your neighbor, do you believe that to be true? How many would agree with that statement that life is sometimes hard? If it's not, I want to be you. I want your life. Because if life is good and easy, either you haven't lived very long, or you're living in la-la land, right? I mean, my goodness. Because everybody I come into contact with will say at some point or another, life isn't easy right now. Life is is hard sometimes. That doesn't mean that life is always bad, but life is hard sometimes. And what we need to recognize as Christ followers this morning is to agree with that statement. There are some in the Christian world that will say, no, life isn't hard. We have Jesus, so we just smile and we go through life and it's wonderful. Well, we're going to learn that that's not even what Jesus taught. But what we have to recognize is though life is hard, we amen that. Life is hard. Say amen to that. Amen. That's hard. It's hard. It's tough. But here's the truth on this side of perspective that we must understand. Yes, life is hard. Yes, life breaks our hearts sometimes. Yes, life doesn't make sense sometimes. Yes, life really brings us to our knees sometimes. But as a Christian, we have another option. And that other option is to look at God's perspective and say, while life is hard sometimes, God is always good. He's good. So I want you to look at that person that said, life is hard. I want you to tell them with great passion, but our God is so good. Say that to them. You don't mean it. God is good. Amidst our hardships and our trials, we can consider it all joy, my brothers, when trials of various kinds come our way because our God is good. Not good sometimes, not good on uh, certain occasions. God is good always. And when we recognize that and we hold on to that truth, we will find that even the greatest of trials can be counted as joy. That's James's aim this morning. That's what he wants to teach the people he's writing this letter to first. And as we look at their mail, and we read their mail, that's what we're going to learn this morning. So here's what James says. James, a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person, that person who doubts, James says, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That man who doubts is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James finishes this section on trials and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to come into this place, to gather in fellowship with other believers and those who seek to know and understand you more. Thank you for our worship team that has led us in worship, that has pointed us to Jesus. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to lift our requests and our friends' requests and our concerns, Lord, our needs as a nation and as a people. Lord, thank you for hearing the prayers not only of, of all of those who believe here in the United States, but those who are worshiping and lifting up your name high over all the earth. Now speak through your servant, Lord, I pray that my words would be true, that my words would be right, that my words would be clear. Lord, I pray that I would back away into the shadows so that you might be seen brightly and that your truth may ring out in your church today. We ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. When I was a child and we would be watching television, our TV watching would at times be interrupted. I don't see this very often anymore, but when I was a kid, we'd be watching a cartoon or some sort of sitcom, and as we were watching it, we would be jolted out of our seats by a loud blaring sound that would come from our television. And the sound would go on for 10, 15 seconds. And then after that blaring sound, we would have words on the screen and a deep-voiced gentleman would come on and say, this is only a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Had there been a real emergency, information would be on your screen from local authorities to tell you how to respond in case of an emergency. I remember it because we used to see it all the time. It would come on once or twice throughout the day. Now, one thing I, I, I don't ever remember here in the Chicagoland area is that it ever came on when it wasn't a test. So I knew about it, I knew what it was when it was a test, but I never saw it really in action. But what the purpose was, was that the television companies, and it would say it within all of the uh, articulation that the deep-voiced gentleman would say, was that with, in conjunction with local authorities and local TV stations, your, your federal government and state and local authorities want to make sure that in case of an emergency, you know how to respond. Had it been a real emergency, all the information you would need to know to weather the catastrophe that has obviously taken place in our area or in our country will help you to know how to weather the storm. Now, we've done this for years. We have always wanted to make sure that if we want to properly respond to the emergencies around us, that we train for this. 
three times in the Bidal family, I have learned how to create a fire drill protocol for a fire that happens in my house. At some point, the boys go through first or second grade, maybe it was even kindergarten, where the assignment is, what are you going to do in case of a fire? And we've got to draw our lines where we're going to go, how we're going to get out of the house and all of that. We tell our children that, that maybe in the chance that you catch fire, your job is to stop, drop, and roll. See, you went to the same school, right? Back in the day, my mom used to tell us uh, when she was about 10 or 11 years of age, when, when the tension and conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States was heating up during the Cuban Missile Crisis, that they had the job of duck and cover as if a thermonuclear bomb going off in your backyard is going to be held at bay by the plywood top of your desk. Right? We did it. We did it in case of emergency. We wanted to be prepared. Well, James sounds the alarm to the church and to the people of faith in his day. And he says, listen, I want you to know this isn't a test. What this is, is this is real life. This is something that's going to come our way. Notice he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when. Not if, but when. It's a, it's a certainty. There's an inevitability to trials. Uh, one of the guys in the Bible that experienced more trials than anyone else is the man Job. Job experienced a very uh, real life with real trials and real struggles. And what he tells us in James 5-7 is man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. You ever looked at a fire? Sparks always go up into the air. And what he's saying is just as that truth is universal, that sparks fly up from a fire, so it is a universal truth that you and I are born to trouble. Now some of you will say, maybe, I hope not too many of you, that because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I have been exempted from trials. Because I invited Jesus into my life as Lord and Savior, I no longer have to worry about trials or tribulation because I've got the Savior of the universe on my side. He will make sure that, that nothing befalls me. Well, here's the problem. In John 16, Jesus talking to the closest of his friends and associates and followers says in John 16, 33, Hey, disciples, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble. Life is going to be hard. There are going to be situations and scenarios that bring you to your knees. And so we've got to know, we've got to understand in this inevitability of trials and tribulations, when issues and struggles come our way, how as Christ followers are we going to respond? Are we going to respond in self-reliance or are we going to rely on our Savior? Are we going to rely on our own power or God's? Are we going to rely on our own wisdom or God's wisdom found in His Word? James says, I want you to rely on God. I want you to see from God's perspective your troubles. So knowing that trials are going to come our way, knowing that some of you right now are dealing with deep struggles and tribulation, James has a word for all of us. First of all, James wants us to know when trials come, we need to recognize and know that we can be glad because God is in control. We can be glad because God is in control. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials 
of various kinds. James addresses trials head on. He puts it at the top of his letter. He says, listen, Christian, in this world you're going to have trouble, and so when you meet trials of various kinds, I want you to consider it joy. This isn't the first time someone has said that. In Matthew chapter 5, write this passage down. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, James's older brother, says the following, Blessed are you... When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, when trials and tribulations come, rejoice and be glad. When James says trials and tribulation come, it says rejoice and be glad. The New Testament example, when trials and tribulations came, they rejoice. Remember, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. They say, Jesus is Lord. The Sanhedrin says, no, He's not. Stop saying that. They say, we'll never stop saying that. They say, you want to bet? And they beat them severely. They're beaten down. They're flogged. Are they leaving that place, licking their wounds and saying, you know what, maybe we need to reconsider this Jesus thing? No, it says in the book of Acts that they left rejoicing in their suffering. In Acts chapter 16, we are told that Paul and Silas are in jail. They have been beaten for their crime of preaching Christ. And now they find themselves shackled up in a prison in a Philippian jail. And what does it say? That in the midnight hour, instead of lamenting and asking why God this terrible thing has taken place, they are rejoicing and singing praises to God. All in the prison could hear the praises that they sang. They rejoiced and were glad in it. The Apostle Paul, we are told, in the book of 1 Corinthians tells us, even though we are beaten down, even though we are at times broken, we can rejoice in all times of affliction. The Bible makes it clear that in times of difficulty, the Christian has a different perspective with regards to trials. While the unbeliever says, why is this terrible thing happening? I don't deserve it. I don't want it. The Christian can look at it and say, with all joy, I'm enduring a trial. Now, right away, every alarm in your natural reaction of your body should be going off saying, you've got to be kidding me. This is a joke, right? I mean, what were James, John, and Jesus, and Peter and Paul talking about, are they just this masochistic group of people? Lay it on me a little thicker, hit me a little harder life. And I've got this joy in my heart, this smile. I want you to recognize, to understand it, we must recognize, first of all, the word to consider it all joy. Now what it isn't saying is, is that you and I need to hide the pain of a trial or pretend that that pain that hurts us so much actually feels good. It doesn't. I don't want you clapping and applauding when your doctor says you have cancer. I don't want you singing hip hip hooray when a spouse says I'm out of here. I don't want you to start high-fiving everybody when you're told you've lost your job. That is not what James is saying. He wants us to consider it all joy. Look at the word count or consider in some of your Bible translations. That word is important. The word in the original language that James was writing, the Greek language, 
literally means to evaluate. Evaluate it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word count, consider, evaluate, was an accounting term that first century people used when they were trying to balance the books. What they would do is they would say, okay, here are the withdrawals, here are the deposits, and as we add and subtract, add and subtract, here is the sum total, the end result. You consider, you count, you evaluate when you balance your checkbook, hopefully each month, right? You look at the withdrawals, you look at the deposits, at the end, there's a number, there's a sum total after the addition and subtraction has been done. What, what God wants you to do is He wants you to pull out a calculator and, and put in the withdrawals, the trials in your life. Okay, you put all those in and they come up to a negative amount, if you will. And then God wants you to ask the question, is there anything good that comes from all of this negative? Are there deposits that these trials are producing in my life? Now, from a human standpoint, God is null and void in your life. So you don't care. And so trials in your life are always negative. They're always bad. But God doesn't want you to use a human, if you will, calculator from a human perspective. He wants you to do it, your math and your addition and subtraction from God's perspective. Now, God's perspective or God's calculator doesn't say, oh, you don't really have trials or troubles. We've already seen over and over again that the followers of Jesus Christ do have trials, do have troubles. I do not want you to dismiss your trials or troubles as if it were through Christian cliche, we're all Christians, we don't have any problems. We do have problems. We do have struggles. But what God wants us to do is take all the trials in our life, negative, negative, negative. So the trial within the family, the trial within our marriage, the trial within our finances, the trial within that relationship, that trial within uh, my own being, my emotional state. I want you to put all those down. Negative, negative, negative. These hurt. They're painful. They're not bringing me happiness. In fact, they're bringing me sorrow. God says put all those down. But from my perspective, I want you to remember some things. I want you to add these things into perspective. And joy is being able to take the negative, adding whatever positives that God may add to the trials, and hopefully after that, an equal sign, finding joy or considering joy is when you come up with a positive as an equal, not as a negative. Does that make sense? You take your trials, you add God's perspective to the trials, and at the end of that math problem, if you have a positive, you should be able to find joy. So, what are the positives we need to add? From God's perspective, number one, God, I know you were not surprised by this trial. So tomorrow morning, you go into work, you think you got 30 more years at that place, everything's going well, the boss comes in and says, listen, your division has been shut down. But wait a minute. I haven't been looking for a job. Wait a minute. How am I going to take care of my family? God, why would you allow this to happen? I didn't see this coming. Uh, the first thing you need to recognize is God did. I tell our congregation this, and so if you've been with us for a while, I want you to recognize this. There is not a single trial in your life or mine that has not crossed the desk of God Himself. So that medical issue, that relational struggle... That job loss, that problem with your uh, teenager, didn't take God by surprise. 
God's not looking down and going, oh boy, Tim lost his job. How'd that happen? When did that come to man? We didn't see that coming. Not only did God see it coming, but He has all of our trials go across His desk and He stamps approved. Now you say, well, where do you get chapter and verse on that? We get that from the life of Job, right? The devil comes to Job, or the devil comes to God, and he says, listen, I want to mess with Job's life. And God says, okay, listen, you can do one, two, and three, but not four, five, and six. You can do X, Y, and Z, but not A, B, C. And he gives latitude for trials to be introduced into our life, but God says, I approve some, and I disapprove others. I'm going to allow that trial to come, and I'm not surprised by it, but I've allowed it, and in some ways I've stamped my approval on it for some sort of good to come out. Number one, you need to add that to your column. Number two, I need to know and recognize that God has allowed this trial in my life for my good. But wait a minute, it hurts. It breaks my heart. It has caused great angst and and struggle in my life. God, how can you say that it's for my good? Well, James says it right in black and white. That this testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will make us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I surely want to not lack in anything. I want to be complete. Those are good things. Number three... The thing I need to add if I'm going to use God's perspective with my trials is that this trial, just like everything else in the world, is unable to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This cannot ruin my relationship with God. This can't take away the security I have as a believer. God doesn't give up on me or not love me because trials come my way. And so when I add that God is in control of things, that I know that God isn't surprised by these things, that God has approved this trial, allowing it into my life for my good, and that it cannot separate me from my love, whatever my trial is, minus whatever uh, the good that God brings, will always equal, if you're really honest with yourself, a positive, not a negative. It allows us to count it true joy now we know this from scripture hebrews chapter 2 i'm sorry hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 reminds us of jesus christ the greatest example of how we are to count it joy even when trials of many kinds come our way and here's the reason why hebrews 12 2 says that for the joy set before jesus he endured the cross He scorned its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, when I read the New Testament, I don't see Jesus on the cross clapping, going, this is great. He couldn't. His hands were nailed to a wood. I don't see him saying to the disciples, man, man, I'm so excited. This is so awesome. I get to die for people so that they might come to know Jesus, get to know me and have salvation. We don't see that. What do we see with Jesus in his trials? We see him anguishing in a garden. We see him perspiring blood in the garden because of the anguish that he feels. We see him crying out to his Father in heaven, if there's any way for this cup, for for me not to have to go to the cross and endure its scorn and shame, if there's any way for me not to be forsaken by you, to be uh, placed, even though I'm perfect, to be placed amidst sinners, God, if there's any way this cup can pass, let it pass. 
His humanity crying out, announcing to his father, I don't really want to do this. This is going to hurt. This is going to cause pain. This is going to cause sorrow. I don't like it. But it says, for the joy set before him, he endured. Notice it doesn't say he enjoyed the cross. That's not what we're saying. He endured. Why? The last part of the verse. So that he might be seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, Jesus had a perspective that God had something great in store for him, but for a little while he might have to deal with trials of many kinds. You see, in the dark tunnel that, w- that was Good Friday, the little beacon of light and hope of Easter Sunday was along the way. And so what we see is that here, how we feel about trials is supposed to be different. We can feel differently about trials. We don't have to allow our emotions or our human understanding to set the the place. Now you say, well, you can't use Jesus as an example, man. That doesn't work. He's not only God, but He's man. So let me use half of our congregation. Ladies, you know this. You understand this. Men, we don't. Uh, my wife experienced, as many of you ladies have, pregnancy. Three times she did. Three times she would experience 27 full months, nine times three, of her life being changed. Her schedule being sabotaged. Things that she knew about herself and her body being thrown away, if you will. And someone else taking charge. And it was hard. It was difficult. It causes all kinds of trials. And you would think at the end of those nine months, things would get better, right? No, it gets absolutely more worse. I know I'm not using proper English. It's brutal, right? And I was just a spectator. Okay? And I watched my wife in those last hours of that pregnancy writhe in pain. I watched her tell the nurses and doctors around, hand, come on, let's get this thing over with. I saw her have difficulty uttering simple sentences because she could barely catch her breath because of the labor pains. And the birth comes and the baby's here. And I don't see anguish. I don't see anger. I don't see violent outbursts. She was hurting. She was in pain. Ladies, you can amen silently. I know you are. When they put that baby in her arms, she's all smiles. How could you? You've just gone to hell and back, sweetheart. How in the world can you experience joy amidst such pain and such sorrow? Because the end result is worth all the pain in the process. And here's the crazy thing. After our first son was born, it wasn't long after, and I don't want to sugarcoat things, it was a little while after, she said, let's have another. You want to do that again? You want to go through all of that again? Yeah. Because seeing my child now only gives me a hunger for another one. I'm willing to go through the struggle because I know the net result will be awesome. 
That's what God is wanting us to know and understand in the book of James. So he wants you to know how we feel about trials is going to be important. Where's our perspective? What's going to be the defining mark of how we feel about trials? Number two, it's going to tell us about how we face various trials. Notice he goes on and says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Underline if you do that word various. We're going to see that trials come in all shapes and sizes and colors. But before we talk about the various kinds of trials, notice the phrase meet. When you meet various trials, that word meet uh, is, is, is only used, I believe, once or twice in all of the New Testament. The most uh, clear place it's used is in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. We are told that a certain man went out on a journey and he met some thieves. Now, did that guy go on that journey? Does it say in the text that the man went out on the journey expecting that somewhere along the way he was going to be robbed and beaten and left for dead? No, he didn't see it coming. Literally, he fell upon them. The better translation would be, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various kinds of trials. You don't see them coming. You're walking and enjoying a beautiful walk in the park, and you're looking at the trees, and as you're doing it, all of a sudden you fall into this pit. Just as a side note, on Facebook the other day, I was watching this video of this young lady. The cameras were showing her in a, in a mall, and she's looking at her phone. She's not paying attention to where she's going. And the poor lady walks right into this major fountain. Felt so bad for the woman, okay? And of course, nobody helps her out. She just face plants into the water and that's, she's just there. That's kind of the picture, minus the texting and all of that, that we get. You're going on your merry way and you fall face first into, into something you didn't see coming. That's what trials are. Trials hit us. Random acts on a random Tuesday that shake the very foundations of who we are. Now he tells us, the Bible tells us and gives us great examples of all kinds of trials. We know of financial trials. Some of you are struggling right now because you're looking at your bank account and the ends aren't meeting. You're trying to figure out how you're going to pay for this bill or that bill. How you're going to pay for the mortgage. And it causes all kinds of consternation. The kids need this. Uh, your wife or husband needs that. And, and the bills keep coming and coming. And you're filled with stress and anxiety. How are we going to pay for all of this? Financial trials are real. How about relational struggles? I love uh, meeting all of you guys in the parking lot because it's nice just to say hello and, and to see your smiling faces for some of you, especially in the first service, your sleepy faces. But today I was walking in, or as people were walking in, someone came up and said, I said, hey, good morning, how's your week going? And the person said, not very good. My spouse and I, we had issues today. We had struggles. And it's not the first time it's happened. It's, it's ongoing, and, and it's really brought me down, and I don't know what to do about it. And, and that's a real trial. Some of us are dealing with some hard relational issues, breaking our heart. Relational issues sometimes are some of the most difficult because it's amazing what another person can do to us. It's amazing how a person can cut us so deeply. Relational trials are real issues. How about physical trials? How about physical trials? 
Amanda and I experienced a physical trial a couple years ago when a random test, medical test, said that something was wrong and something that was wrong turned into something bigger and would be a trial for us for an entire year. With the prospect, by the way, that our trial of Amanda's cancer could always come back. We live under the threat of cancer because every time she goes and gets another scan and another, another doctor's appointment is the chance that they're going to come back and say, you know what, that cancer's back. We thought we got all of it, but it's shown up here. Some of us are dealing with financial, or sorry, physical trials. And physical trials are brutal because we only got one body. We only got one life. And when we're told that our body is falling apart or our body is literally attacking itself, it can bring us to our knees. Still others have other kinds of trials. How about emotional trials? Emotional trials are hard because we can mask those trials. We can smile. Survey and statistics tell us that that a third of us are masking emotional trials through a fake smile. How you doing? I'm good. And deep down inside, you're breaking. Your heart is broken. You're filled with sorrow. For some, it's it's fear. For others, it's anxiety. For others, it's deep depression. Oh, you want to have a bright outlook on life. But these dark and deep uh, fears and anxieties about the future or your circumstances cripple your ability to look positively at life. These are real. How about spiritual? Oh, Tim, you don't have trials as a believer, especially not with your spiritual life. Well, there are many that do. The devil attacks and he tempts and he he causes us anguish and, and struggle. Some of us doubt whether God loves us. Some of us doubt if we're even really saved. Some of us are concerned about uh, the spiritual well-being of our family and friends. Spiritual struggles and trials come. And what James is saying is trials come in multicolored or variegated ways. All sorts of trials. Now here's what we do. I want to give you a couple words of challenge. Number one, be careful when all kinds of trials come. Number one, that you don't compare your trials to someone else's trials. So we'll say, listen, I really have lots of trials, but that person says, you know, I've got this struggle or this issue, and you don't think it's all that important. You're like, really? That's your trial? I mean, come on. You know who does this really, really good? Parents. Our kids come and they had a bad day at school. And we're like, are you kidding me? The person didn't sit with you at the lunch table? Really? That's your problem? And you start unloading on these poor kids that your trials are far worse. Listen, a trial's a trial, right? If it's a trial for you, if you're experiencing anguish, you've you got to admit, okay, that's a trial. But here's the thing I want you to be careful with, because I I know some will say, but wait a minute, how do we discern whether a trial trial is really a trial? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, some of our trials are what I like to tell my boys at times, that i got to remind myself are first world problems, right? We've got food, we got drink, we got housing, we got clothing, we've got transportation, uh, we've got uh, the ability for health care and, and our basic needs to be taken care of, okay? So outside of that, we're not worried really about our life, okay, for the most part. But what we will do is we'll catastrophize. I know that may not even be a word, right? But what we'll do is a trial will come 
and we'll say it's the biggest thing in the world. Something's happened in our life. Yeah, there's going to be lots of troubles in our life. But not all trials are created equal. As I looked at my life and I went through my life, I've experienced four major trials in my life. I don't have time to go through them all, but I will tell you they are life-changing, life-altering situations. But I've had a lot of trouble in my life. I've had a lot of weeks that haven't gone well. And what I do is, when something doesn't go right in my life, I make it as if it's this massive thing. Oh, the job didn't go the way it needed to, or the Sunday morning didn't go the way it needed to. The sky is falling. And I'm reminded of this truth every time I'm in my kitchen, because in our kitchen, in the hallway next to our kitchen, we have a smoke alarm. And every time we start opening the oven door, because of its positioning, the smoke detector doesn't have any idea that the heat it's feeling is an open oven, not a five-alarm fire. And it just starts blaring, beep, 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 and goes throughout the house. And it's just, it's a nuisance. Why? Because I know deep down inside what the fire alarm doesn't. It's just the roast in the oven. Settle down. But we start screaming. We start yelling when little trials come our way as if an atomic bomb has gone off. James wants us to know, be careful that your feelings don't lead you, but God's Word does. And so if you're a catastrophizer, I know I just made a new word out of a new word, that you take a step back and you ask the question, is this really as life-altering as it seems? So one of the ways that you do that is take it to a friend and say, listen, I've got this problem, and I'm freaked out about it. Talk me back. And usually someone who's not in the fire is able to tell you, listen, this is bad, or, and you've got to be letting them be honest with you and speak truth into you, listen, I think you may be making a bigger issue out of this than it really is. Because we, listen, and we see this in our news, by the way. Every time I turn on the news, have you ever noticed you got to tune in tomorrow because the world's coming to an end? And you're like, "Uh uh uh-huh, 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 oh my gosh. If this bill gets passed, if this thing takes place, then chaos is going to ensue. And our media loves it. Create trials. Create troubles, because people will tune in for that. But if you say, listen, have a great night, sleep well, all is good. You think they're going to tune into the program? No, they're going to enjoy life. We need to be careful when we face various trials. Now, why can we find joy in them? Let's move on. I've got to get going here. We need to see the growth that they're doing. Verses 3 and 4. Count it all joy when trials of various kinds come your way, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, listen, if you want to find joy in your trials, you've got to find out the reason why God allows trials in your life. It is for your good. Notice the phrase, if you underline, underline this, for you know that. For you know that. What James is saying is, guys, you know this in your head. You know God uses trials for good. You've seen the life of the Old Testament saints who have seen bad things happen to good people and seen people rise above it by the power of God and His Spirit living through people. And you've seen good things. Listen, we just got done with an entire series that says trials happen and God uses it for the good. What man intended for harm, God used for the 
good. We just spent a whole series on Joseph's life. Bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Trial upon trial upon trial happened to Joseph. And Joseph was able to obey God. He was, okay. he was able to trust God. Why? Because he knew what man intended for harm, God intended for good. What trials seek to destroy, God uses for our good. Now, what good can come from trials? Number one, it can create in the Christian durability. It can create in the Christian durability. James uses the word steadfastness. That's the Greek word hupomeno. Now you all are fluent in Greek, right? Hupomeno. This word literally is a willing heart that is willing to stand under a heavy weight. Some of you like to work out. God bless you. Do some more for me if you get a chance. And you are willing to allow heavy weight to strain you and you don't try to get out of it you don't try to wiggle yourself out of it you with some level of joy in your heart because you're not doing it and nobody's told you you have to do it right you've made a decision I'm gonna do this and so you put uh, weights on a bar and you willingly lift that weight off the bar knowing that it's gonna be heavy Knowing that it might even hurt a little bit. Knowing that if you know the physiological thing that takes place when you lift uh, weights, that you're literally tearing strands of your muscle in the process. That doesn't sound anything fun. But you willingly do it. And you take the weight off the bar and you begin to allow that weight to come down on you with trust and knowledge that hopefully it doesn't kill you, right? that you're going to do what you've been called to do by your gym teacher and that is to push up that weight, to push against that weight and then to have the, the abnormal thought, let's do it again. And then you push it back up, let's do it again. Because I recognize as I do this, I am proving to my body, number one, that I can do it. Number two, I'm creating a new level of durability. So if I continue to do that with my 10 pounds on each side of the bar, okay, that at some point, my body's going to get used to that 10 pounds, and I'm going to add 10 more pounds, and I'm going to get used to that, and another 10 pounds. And before I know it, i got hundreds of pounds on each side because my body has come to learn what it is to have resistance against it. And what James is saying is, allow the weight to come down on you. Trust God that you're going to be able to push it up. Now, here's an example of how that works out. I moved from the weight room to the TV ad. Remember the last time you watched a pickup truck advertisement. Nowhere do you ever see built Ford tough. And you see this big truck with knobby tires and everything. Thing looks angry as it's driving down the road. Just driving on a straight little road, and there's a person behind it going, This is great. No, what do they show? They show the truck built Ford Tough. Okay, it's always that kind of Texas accent, okay? I don't even know if that's a Texas accent, by the way. And what do they do? We're going to take your Ford truck and we're going to put boulders in the back of it. Look at how the back end holds up under the three tons of rock. And that's not good enough. We're going to hook up the Titanic behind it. Okay? 
And if that's not good enough, if you wondered how strong your Ford truck is, we're going to put it up on the top of Mount Everest. Not the smooth side of Mount Everest, the rocky side. Right? And they show you up-close pictures of the contorting tires, and it's, it's going up and down, and, and it's just chugging, and it's not zooming, it's struggling, going, and it's going to do it. In fact, years ago, I'm going to really date myself. Some of you remember a Ford truck um, advertisement that put a Chevy truck on top of its back end while it p- pulled a Dodge Ram. Talk about great marketing, right? We can take our competitors for a ride and still get up the hill. Why do the automakers show that? Because they want you to know that when you purchase a truck, you can take over the world. Right? That this thing was built for trouble. That it was built not to just go down some nice little road uh, in the country enjoying the views that you can really test this thing. You can put it to the test and you will get to the top of the mountain with all those boulders, with the Titanic, that you're going to make it. If you walk away from a truth this morning, it's this truth. And please don't miss this. God has built the Christian to last. He has built you with factory defaults in your your being through the gift of the Holy Spirit that says, I have built you in that you are able to weather the boulders of trials in your back end. That when I hook you up with the Titanic, you are able slowly but surely able to rise above any rocky hill or rocky cliff that comes your way. And all you got to do is trust. you got to trust, God, you've built me for this. And this boulder of cancer in my life, this boulder of divorce in my life, this boulder of financial struggle in my life, yeah, it hurts. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. But I know that my frame, I know that my ability in Christ Jesus alone is able to weather the storm. And what I want you to know is that when we show ourselves durable, Because of faith, it becomes our greatest outreach tool. Because people are watching because they know, listen, they know this already to be true. They know that in this world we have troubles. No unbeliever is going to fight you. If you said, listen, can I tell you about the Bible? Sure, tell me about the Bible. The Bible says we all have troubles. They're not going to be like, get away. They're going to be like, yeah, I already knew that. Now the question is, how am I going to respond to that? And when they watch you... When they watch you endure trials, they're going to ask this question, how big is your God? Are you going to be like me that throws up his hands and says, I can't believe this is happening. Oh my goodness, this is the worst thing in the world. Or will they see us consider it pure joy that we have a God who will never leave us for, or forsake us. That we have a God who is, makes us more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That we've got a God who loves us and nothing can separate us from his love. And they're watching. And they want to know, how are you going to respond? Will you be like Job's wife who says, curse God and die? Or will you face trials of many kinds because of the durability that God gives us? Notice he also brings forth maturity. When steadfastness has its full effect, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, perfect doesn't mean sinless. 
The idea here is that you've stood toe-to-toe with your trials, and you've seen faith rise above the trials that you have. That you know now the completeness, lacking nothing, is, is that my faith in God is so resolute, is so strong, that I know that I can weather the storm. Every year in my catering company, we go and we buy charcoal, pallets of charcoal. And I have a trailer that we go and we get the charcoal from a local home improvement store and we put it on there. And because I've put as many as 10 pallets at a time on that trailer, it's a lot of weight. And I watch the van and the trailer when the guy brings the forklift in and sets the charcoal pallets on there, hundreds of bags of charcoal. And I never am like, oh man, oh, oh, take it easy. Oh no, why? Because we put 10 pallets on it before. I know it can handle it. So I never have any doubts. Now, the new guy, they always give me a new guy. When he comes, he goes, you think he can handle it? I say, yeah, set it on there. It can handle it. It can probably handle 12. But we only got to put 10 on it. Being complete, lacking in nothing is this deep sense of peace that whatever comes my way, because either I've seen God work in others' lives, or seen it true in the Scriptures, or I've seen it true in my own life, God is faithful. I have nothing to fear. When you make that your understanding about the trials you're facing, it will revolutionize the way you think. Now listen, I came to understand this at 14 years of age. The biggest trial I've ever experienced in my life is the death of my brother. Nothing, everything else pales in comparison to that. And I remember looking at my parents and, and watching them because while I was in the trial, I could see that this trial had a far deeper effect in my parents' life than it did on me. I lost a brother. That's big. But many would say losing a child is horrific. And I watched my parents. And early on, on September 17, 1990, I watched both of my parents and that weight was weighing them down. And i got to be honest with you, I wondered if they were going to break. I watched my mom fall apart. And I'm sitting there, she's, she's going to break, she's going to snap. And you know what's going to give? Her faith in God. My dad's faith in God is going to finally snap because they had been faithful and all God did was allow this horrific trial, this massive boulder in their life, their firstborn son gone to a car accident. And they're weighed down. And I sat there and said, okay. This is when they're going to curse God and die. Those were my thoughts as a 14-year-old kid. And I watched the presence and power of God as they were being smushed down. Little bit by little bit, they started to rise up. Little by little bit. And I remember my dad at points that afternoon when, when he's reeling from the loss of his son. I remember my dad as he's being crushed under the weight saying, Your grace is sufficient. My father growled those words in my presence. God, your grace is sufficient. And little by little, his legs started to stop wobbling and his legs got secure. And I remember when we were in the morgue around my brother's dead and lifeless body, my dad didn't sit there and say, why would God let this happen? But before even it became a praise song, my dad uttered the words of Scripture, you give and you take away God, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And his legs got tighter and stronger. And now I see my father the loss is no less 
But now he looks back and says, God, you have used this great wrong. You used this great trial in our family's life to only grow us, to bring character and perseverance in our life. Does, does he hate the day that he said goodbye to his son? You betcha. But he has seen the faithfulness of God that my dad no longer is weak, kneed, and wobbly. But he stands up strong and he says, listen, what do I have to fear if God is for me? Who can be against me? Does that make sense? Do we understand that that's what James is wanting to tell us? He's not saying trials are easy. He's saying they are really hard. But when you trust God and honor God, durability comes. When you trust God and honor God, maturity comes. Notice this. He uses the phrase, and I know I need to get going. He uses the phrase, James says, it involves testing. That phrase testing literally comes from a blacksmith back in the day. Men that would fashion and shape iron in the first century. And, and, and one day, uh, some weeks ago, and I put this in as a spot that I wanted to talk about this, I came upon an article about the fashioning of steel or iron. And this blacksmith in this article was talking about how do you know when you are to pull the iron out of the fire? He says, you leave the iron in the fire and you know it's ready when you pull it out and you hold it close to your face and you can literally see your reflection. And I said, wait a minute. Is it not true that God leaves us in the fire until He can pull us out and He lifts it up and looks at us and He sees His reflection in our lives? Okay, the trial's done. You've become more like my son, Jesus Christ. Now listen, sometimes that doesn't happen in the here and now sometimes god keeps us in the fire for an entire life so what do we do in those moments we ask god for help i'll move quickly through these you ask god for help verses five through eight if any of you lacks wisdom let me ask god who gives generously to all without reproach it'll be given to him but let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is dr driven and tossed by the wind. For the person who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Listen, I once went to my father, and I said, Dad, I need advice. And my dad gave me the advice. It was good advice. And, I, and he says, now, son, what are you going to do? And he says, I said, listen, Dad, I'm going to do my own thing. My dad says, here, just a, another piece of advice. Don't come back to me. Why well, ask me for advice and then go your own way? What good is that? A double-minded man hears good, godly, wise advice and then goes and does his own thing. Now, we need to ask the question, is God just this magic eight ball that we go to for advice when we run into trouble? That's not what James is talking about. He's not talking about wisdom per se for a particular problem. He's talking in an overarching way. The crux of what James is talking about is how do we deal with this paradox of joy amidst trials? How do we get God's perspective? First of all, we get God's perspective by not doubting His promises. There are three promises in our text about God. But before I get to them, I want you to recognize what doubt sounds like. Because many of you say, well, I don't doubt God. I know I do. And here's what I think. When trials come, number one, I think, write these down. It might be helpful. I know you're perfect and I'm not. So just write these down so you know what your pastor's dealing with. Number one, when a trial comes, my first thought is, God's committing abuse on me. God, why are you doing this? Do you like it that I'm filled with pain? Do you like it that, I mean, does it, do you, do, does it make you feel good that I'm hurting? 
Have I somehow missed your commands and now you're just pounding me, getting a pound of flesh out of me? That's what comes into my mind when trials come. And I start to doubt. I doubt whether God loves me or not. Number two, do, I, do you say, maybe like me, that God hasn't lived up, lived up to his end of the deal? Oh, I do this all the time, people. Listen, I find myself busy serving God, active. I remember when I was by myself for the first time after Amanda's diagnosis of cancer, and I remember thinking, listen, God, can we just have a mano a mano talk? Listen, you never have a mano a mano talk with God, okay? You lose those every time. And here's what I said. I've served you. I've given you my time and my energy. I give of my money. I give of my service. I I make sure my family follows you. God, I do all these things. And you bring me this? You bring this into my life? Come on, what, what are you doing here? I've kept up with my end of the bargain. I'm serving you. And you allow this to take place? Let me tell you something. God doesn't say just because you serve Him. In fact, in the Hall of Faith, which is in Hebrews chapter 11, we see person after person, wise, godly people endure hardship and trials for a lifetime. There's no guarantee. Number three, I sometimes think, and I'm with David in this, God, you've left me. You've left me. I'm living for you, God, and you've abandoned me. I've devoted my life to you, and like a wayward spouse, you can't be found when the going gets tough. You're not hearing my cries. You're not concerned about my problems. I'm lying to myself when I say that because I know God is there with me, that He loves me. Number four, God, you're supposed to make things better. See, a lot of us will say this, God, I'm okay with the trial as long as at the end of it, you make everything perfect again. Now, I'm going to badmouth a Christian movie for you, and you can, you can evaluate whether I'm right or wrong in this. I call this facing the giant's theology. Remember the movie? Wife can't have a baby. Football team doing no good. No money in the bank account. No promotion at work. And the trial goes on in the movie, Facing the Giants, okay? Woe is us, woe is us, woe is us. But I trust God, and I believe in God, and what does God do? God makes my wife pregnant. He gives me money and a new truck. He gets a promotion. And by the way, the football team wins the state championships. And we say, well, God, I can endure a trial if that's what's going to happen. Listen, here's the problem. That doesn't happen in real life. Right? There's a lot of people that get nothing in the end. And we got to be careful that we don't hallmark eyes. There's another new word, okay? What the Bible says about trials. Some of you, listen, and this is really hard for me to say, some of you who are experiencing incredible anguish and trials, it may not change for the rest of your life. There's no guarantee. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, okay, after 10 years, your trial will get better. Your life may be filled with trials. But God says, suffer hardship like a good soldier. And God says, listen, while this life may not be all that it was cracked up to be, one day you will stand in glory and it will be worth every second. Don't get your cues from Hollywood, whether Christian or non-Christian. They don't usually add up. Number, number five, God is supposed to help me make sense of my trial. Can I tell you that, again, again, I have four major trials in my life. 
in my 40 years. And I can't make sense of any of them. God hasn't given me an answer this side of heaven. And I don't think He's going to. As to why these issues took place. Of why He would alter my life as He has. I just got to trust. I got to know that His ways are higher than my ways. I got to recognize that His ways are better than my ways. I've just got to trust that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, even when it doesn't make sense. God doesn't have to answer you. So, so I got to move. I, I'm, I, I, let's get going here. So three promises. Write these down. These are important. What are three promises when you go through trials? First of all, God is good. God is good. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We have a God who wants us to run to him. I can't tell you as a father how great it is when my children come and say, Dad, can we talk? I've got a problem. I love that. And God does too. He wants you to draw near to him. He wants you to come close to him. And if trials are wet, which will draw you near to your God, God says, I love it. God is generous. He's generous. Listen, He gives generously to all. So He lavishes His gifts upon us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. He wants to pour out His riches and His mercy upon you. He lavishes it not on some, but underline that word, to all. He wants to give it to you. And He's gracious. God is good, He's generous, and He's gracious. Notice... It says that He gives to all without reproach. Another translation says without finding fault. So you come to God and say, God, I'm scared. God, I'm confused. God, I don't know what to do. God doesn't go, you're such a dummy. How could you think that way? No, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do what your parents sometimes do. God doesn't do what your boss sometimes does. God doesn't do even sometimes what your pastor does. God says, listen, come and I do not find fault. I want to give you my wisdom. I want to give you my perspective within this trial. Now, in verses 9 through 11, he gives us one other thing that causes us doubt. I'm just going to go through this quickly. You can study it later. But in verses 9 through 11, it says, Be careful, your doubt can cause you to depend on your possessions. He goes on and he says, listen, there are two kinds of people in trials, a rich man and a poor man. And he says, the rich man, he's going to be brought low and the poor man's going to be brought up. And here's why. Because the poor man has nowhere else to go but God in his trials. The rich man has visa. The rich man has home equity. The rich man has 401ks. The rich one has stock options. The rich one has annuities. The rich one has all kinds of cash hoardings that he can turn to. And so when trials come, James knows this to be true. When trials come, we look to our checking account as our God instead of God Himself. And so God, it says through James, be careful that you don't allow your possessions to be your Savior. Only Jesus can be that. So don't doubt, depending on your possessions... Trust God. Well, what happens when we do this? Very quickly, you keep the goal in sight. When we follow God's way, notice He says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for he has stood the test of time. He'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. What's the end result? A crown. 
I want you to notice this is an eschatological promise. What that means, it's a promise to come in the age that is to come. So listen, you're struggling through trials and all of that. There is no guarantee that that trial will be resolved on this earth. But in the life to come, there will be a day where we'll stand before God and He will wipe away every tear and He'll take away every pain and every sorrow and every issue and every struggle. He'll wipe it all away. He will make all things new and He will look to you and I who have endured trials and He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And our head will be bowed and He will put this victor's wreath like that of an Olympic uh, individual in Greece and He'll say, you've run the race. You fought the fight. And you're done. And you should be commended. And in that moment, when we felt our legs giving out in life, when we felt like we couldn't go on, it will all be worth it. Peter said this, in light of the great joys that will come in the life to come, we will look at our life in the here and now and call our trials as big as they were, light and momentary. In light of what is to come. So I know it's dark. I know you're wondering, will it ever get done? I want you to look, and there's this little gleam, and it's through faith that we see this. It's this little, little glimpse of hope, this little light at the end of the tunnel, and that is the crown of life that is there for you if you will just trust and obey. How are you going to withstand trials? Are you going to do it on your own? Or are you going to trust God? Are you going to look from your perspective or God's? God says when you trust... When you obey, when you hold to my perspective, that maybe in this life, but surely and truly in the life to come, you will experience a crown that will make this all pass away. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your people and their patience and perseverance as we've heard the Word of God taught. Lord, I pray that we'll apply these truths. Lord, I pray that we will ask universal questions. Lord, is this true for all? Or is this true for just a a certain amount? Lord, is this for me? Or is this for maybe someone else in a different situation? Give us ability to discern how to apply the truth that You've laid before us. Lord, if something needs to change, that You would convict our spirits of that, You would challenge us. If there's some encouragement to be found, Lord, I pray that You would encourage the hearts of, of people who are broken. Thank You, Lord, that You walk through trials with us. That You are the one who can calm the storm. But even when You don't, Lord, I'm thankful that You're the God who weathers the storm with us. That You never leave us or forsake us. For surely You are with us always to the very end of the age. Give us Your perspective at trials, I pray, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.